0: Coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 12th of March, 2023. Jesus, All or Nothing. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, the first chapter. We looked at Paul's greeting. To the church there at Colossae and we mentioned that he had probably never ever visited there so he's speaking on the basis of a report from a Epaphras who is mentioned in verse 7 then we looked at a prayer that he had for them and uh, we said we could use that as a model for any kind of prayer for other believers that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding for the purpose of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. He turns his attention from those opening words to the beginning of the message that he has for the church. And he comes right out and he holds no punches back. <laughs> he, he just lets loose a salvo. Now, I'm not, I don't always have people mark in their Bibles, and you may not mark in your Bible, and that's okay if you don't. But I want to read this passage for you, and I want you to notice how many times Paul uses the word all or everything. Okay? So listen, or you can read along, of course. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, talking about his beloved son, Jesus Christ. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence for in him all the fullness of God dwells and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you go, Paul, what are you talking about? This is everything. And that's the point of my message today Is Jesus, all or nothing. All or nothing. So we're going to look at this passage, but I'm going to start with the first line of this section. And uh, it's indelibly written on my heart, and you may have heard this story if you've been here any length of time. But I'm going to share it again because it was born out of the context of this passage. Scripture says that Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. The word image there has to do with just what we would suspect. That if you wanted to see who God is like, we would look at it. At something. We now have pictures, photographs, those kind of things, and you go, how can we identify that person? Oh, here's the picture. Does that tell us everything? No, not necessarily. Uh, picture. But uh, we've also seen the idea of a child born. And the child is born, and ah, oh, who's he look like? He looks like dad, flaming red hair, you know. And on and on it goes. So we have the idea of Jesus being the image of the invisible God. And let me tell you the story that's written on my heart. It was born, I'll give you a little backstory up to the point of this message. One Sunday morning, we had one of our ladies come in and she wanted to share some good news with us. Her daughter-in-law had just had a baby boy in the hospital and so we were all rejoicing. This was some time ago when we were in the other building. We built this in 88 so that tells you how far back it was. Her daughter-in-law had just had a baby boy which meant her son now is enjoying a new Uh, baby boy as well. And uh, so we all rejoiced with her that Sunday morning as she told that news and went back home and it wasn't but shortly after lunch that I get this phone call from this grandmother. And she goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but the baby died in the hospital. Would you go and see my daughter-in-law? He says, not only that, my son had just left the hospital and was down in Portland to come home. He doesn't even know that his son has passed away. So if you go down there, you will probably beat him because he won't find out until he gets back here. But would you go down and see my daughter-in-law? Well, I hadn't met her before, I didn't really know her, but I said, sure, I'll go down. And it went down to the hospital and I had the room number to go to. And I was walking down the hall at Kaiser and there was this gal coming my way and she stepped into my path. And I looked at her and I hadn't even recognized her. Her face was so swollen from crying and as you can imagine. And so she led me back to her room and uh, we both had a good cry together. And she she said something to me that came out in the discussion over the next hour and a half. She says, I believe that my son is in heaven. And I said, I do too. She says, I, I believe in God and I believe that, that my son is in heaven. As it turned out, what had happened was um, one of the main arteries to the heart hadn't fully developed and they hadn't caught it and then it closed up and that was the end. The boy was too weak to survive. So we, we talked and then the husband showed up. Of course he was a mess too. Um, well, don't blame him at all. And we talked for a little bit and he left and we continued this conversation with the wife. And um, she says, can you tell me why? Can you tell me why? And at that point, I couldn't. But there was a thought that popped into my head. And the thought was, maybe this will be used by God to touch some lives. Didn't say anything out loud to her. She wasn't ready to hear any of that. So after a while, I came home. And over the weeks, literally months, I would I would see her occasionally and and talk with her she wasn't obviously a part of our congregation or anything and um, she expressed appreciation several times for me coming and seeing her in the hospital and I, she says I, I really should come and and come to your church sometime and I said it's not why I'm here you know to We would love to have you, but that isn't why I'm here. And so then I was preaching one Sunday morning on this passage. And uh, as you know, I usually don't take as short a line as something like this. He is the image of the invisible God. And the point of my message that Sunday morning was, you can't believe in a God up there without coming to grips with the person of Jesus Christ. And on that particular Sunday morning, she walked in service with her mother-in-law. And I'm thinking, Lord, this this has got to be your thing because I had no idea that she would show up. It was months after all this has happened. So I preached the message dealing with the fact that you've got to come to grips with Jesus Christ. Not just the God up there, the invisible God. Well, she greeted me at the door, thanked me for the message, went home, and, and I get a call later that afternoon and says, uh, do you have a Bible study on Jesus, because I don't know him. You know, and that's like saying sick him to a dog, you know. And I said, yeah, I I think I can come up with something. And so uh, she goes, well, where where are we going to meet? And I said, I've got just a place. And She she says, where? And I said, at your mother-in-law's house. She'll be there, and, and you'll be in safety and security, and so will I, and and we can have this Bible say. She says, sounds good. So I met with her. And um, we met over the next several weeks, starting in the Gospel of John, passage that Tom read for us, and moving through that. And by about the third lesson, she goes, I'm ready. And I go, ready for what? says, I want Jesus in my life. And she accepted the Lord right there in her mother-in-law's home. And uh, how good was that? Unfortunately, we were headed out that following week to vacation. And so we left the area, came back. And I'm looking forward to her coming and joining her mother-in-law on the surface. She didn't show. And then she called me up and she goes, I hope you're not too upset, and I go, why? He says, well, I've decided to go out to Clover Valley out here. I have some friends that attend that church, and and, uh, I thought I'd go there. And I said, of course not, I know the pastor, he's a good fundamental teacher, sharing the word, believes the word, that's okay by me. As I said, I wasn't in the recruiting business. I told her later, I was only upset later when I found out that she played the piano and we needed a piano player. But that was another whole story. (laughs) But after the fact, sometime later I saw her and she says, Pastor Tim, I think I know the answer to the question. I didn't have a clue of what she was talking about. She said, that question I asked you in the in the service, in the the hospital. And I said, what's that? Remember I asked you, why did this happen? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I think it was so I could come to Jesus Christ as Savior. But she came to the realization of what this passage is all about. Anyone who says that they believe in God must believe in Jesus because he is the express image of the invisible God. John 14, you're familiar with this story. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. Philip uh, asked Jesus a question. He said, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. That I am in the Father, Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Paul writes and says, he is the image of the invisible God. You can't come to grips with a God up there without coming to grips with the God who came here. That's the point. Now remember, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. He hadn't been there. And so he's going to speak to some issues. And one of the issues uh, is not really readily apparent right here in these verses. But there was a growing um, heresy that uh, was happening in the church and would develop further later on in history. And that was Gnosticism. Gnosticism held to the idea that there was superior spiritual enlightenment available that superseded Jesus Christ. And the reason it superseded Jesus Christ, because the Gnostics believed that anything to do with the flesh would hinder uh, the full revelation of of whoever the, a spiritual leader would be, and so Jesus Christ would have to be on a lower rung spiritually than what they presented as as true and undefiled faith. And Paul writes along those lines, and that's why we see the word repeated over and over in this section, all and everything. Listen to it again. We'll look at the next section where he, in verse uh, the last part of verse 15 down through 17, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sort of encapsulates all of it, doesn't it? Basically, he says, there is no one else besides Jesus Christ who was involved in the creation of all the things that we know. And so we come to the second point. point, first point, anyone who says they believe in God must believe in Jesus. The second point that Paul makes is when we look at all creation, we should always ponder its maker and sustainer, Jesus Christ. Why? And he gives us several statements. He's the firstborn of all creation, which, if you thought about it for a minute, meant it could cause some consternation. Are you saying that Jesus Christ was the first thing created? No, that's not what he's talking about. Not firstborn in creation. What it means is he's superior in position. He is in the first place position when you come to think about creation. It should naturally take you, when you look at creation, to Christ. That's the point. Not that he was first born in the sense that he was the first thing that was created. No, because he was the one that was doing the creation. The second point It says, by him, all things were created. So he is then the creator of all things. That makes sense, right? So from microbe to galaxies, from the depths of the sea to the tops of the mountains, from the deserts to the ice packs and glaciers, from the womb to the last breath. Jesus is integral in the creation, his creation. I love this statement in Hebrews, the first chapter. If you turn there with me for a moment. Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to what the writer says. He says, Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He had some spokesmen. He says, But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels in name as he has inherited a more excellent one than theirs. And so he comes along and he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, and through him, he created the world. You say, well, what's the significance of that? He says, because any person who is stopping to think about this world and how things work, whether you're talking about philosophy or something, they all came from him. So the natural world, the things that we think about, all of it, our ability to even think and ponder, came from him. Scripture goes on from there, and he says that he upholds all things. Or as he says here in Hebrews, he says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus didn't just create the world and say, okay, we're going to kickstart you and let you run, get going. No, it says that he is intimately involved in his creation from its start and also as it sustains. Listen to what Isaiah. Writes in his book, Isaiah 44 24, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Did it. This was my work, and my creation. I made it and I sustained it. Now, you mainly probably don't hang out in the book of Job. But in the book of Job, there is a really cool couple of verses in Job 34. And the question is asked, who gave God charge over the earth? Who laid on him the whole world? Well, the answer is, we've already seen, no one Gave that job to him. He did it himself. He's the one that made the world. No one said, hey, I'm assigning it to you. You know, you're charged with that. But he goes on and he says something about this whole sustaining work. Because in verse 14, he says, If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. I've thought about that now. I, there's mixed reviews about who Bill Cosby is and what he's about. And But at one time, he was a pretty good comedian. And I remember him telling his story about his father. He says his father... Uh, with the kids in the house, would go to bed, and the kids would be in their room, and Dad would start to to breathe out loud. We we call that snoring, okay? And so Dad would be, and he says, and all the kids would get into rhythm with Dad. He would. All the kids would go, "Uh," and then he would go, "Uh," and we'd all breathe out. And then dad would go, "Uh," and he goes, and we would cry out, dad, breathe so we can breathe. (laughs) And you think, well, that Bill Cosby came up with that. He said, where did he come up with it? I dare say he came up with it in Job. Because he says, if he should send his heart to it and gather to himself his breath, his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish. In other words, we go back to Genesis. It says that that Adam was formed of the dust of the earth and God breathed into him the breath of life. Wouldn't it be an interesting thing? And I'm not saying this is how it works, but wouldn't it be interesting as God breathes, we're able to breathe. You know, sort of like Bill Cosby and his father. And we're going, this is good. And Job says, but if he should hold, withhold his breath, we are so connected to the Creator that if he should withhold his breath, we would all together. Man would return to dust. How important is Jesus Christ to creation? Wow, well, and we haven't even really investigated the depth and the beauty and the strength of creation. Uh, anytime you do a deep dive into a subject, and you're especially looking at creation, the deeper you dive, the more wonder there is to be found. We're familiar with the story of how the world works because we interact with it every day. But I can remember my first time being uh, introduced to a microscope. And in the microscope, we looked at something that I saw every day. It was happened to be some water. And we looked into the water, this water was semi-polluted, but anyway, I looked into the water, could have been pond water, could have been a puddle out in the driveway and looked into it. there was all sorts of teeming life in there. I never would have noticed, didn't think about it and yet it was there. God created it. We look at the intricacies of how we're made, how from those at first joining of the egg and the sperm and the splitting of the cells and, and the multiplying of the cells, how from that would come things like teeth and fingernails and bones and also skin, how that there would be taste receptors in their tongue and in their mouth, and how our ears would work until they don't, but how they would work, which are different from eyes, which all came from that first little bit of creation. And the psalmist in 139 says, you formed me in the intricate depths of my mother's womb. God was creator. And you go, so what's the important thing about this when it comes to a sermon? It's just this. That we can't ignore Jesus. Jesus is always the point of the creation. He's its maker it's a sustainer. And when we look at creation, it ought to drive us to Jesus. But he's not done. He's got one more thing that he wants to say. And I, I'm summarizing them together. In in our passage this morning, as he's writing, he says that that um, He is, in verse 18, the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so when we look at the church and we turn the focus from all of creation in general to the entity, which is the church, and we're not talking about this building, we're talking about believers. When we look at the church, we should always see Jesus. Always. Always. He lays out for us some words that speak to this issue. Now remember, what Paul is doing is he is speaking against the notion that Jesus Christ is inferior. There's something better than this. And Paul comes along and he goes, no, he made it all. He's the one who sustains it. There is nobody to take his place. That's that's Jesus Christ. When he comes to the church, and you're talking in the spiritual arena, is there anyone better, higher up, on beyond who Jesus Christ is? And the answer that Paul is giving us here is nope. When we look at the church, what he says, he is the head of the body, the church. Well, what does the head do? The head gives direction. It takes the information that is sought out through the body and he ministers back to the body. That's the role of the head, okay? Whether it's physical body or, in this case, a spiritual body, the church. And just like creation, it says that he is uh, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. What does it mean to be firstborn from the dead? Well, it doesn't take too long for us to figure out that Jesus Christ rose again after he was crucified. He said, what's the significance of that? Because he's talking in terms of our, our faith, our spiritual life. And he says, we serve... A risen Savior. We serve a risen Savior. Peter, in Acts chapter two says, "And God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it." Yeah, that's a place where you, even a Baptist could say, "Amen." <laughs> Paul wrote it this way when he wrote to the church at Corinth. In chapter 15, he says, The fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as one, and by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has also the resurrection of life. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, each to his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and then those at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so when Paul writes to the church here at Colossae, he says, not only did he initiate and start the church, he is the head of the church, and he is the firstborn from the dead. He is showing us that there is life after death. And it's found in him. You go, so what? Well, to the religious people that day reading this, they would go, where can I go but to the Lord? <laughs> because if I want to be raised, where do I better, who should I better be aligned to than Jesus Christ? Because only in him is resurrection to be found and he's the first fruits and I want to be in line with that. He's not really challenging all the other religions of the world because that isn't his point. His point is to underscore who he is and say, what do you think? Can you match it? Can you match it? That he might have preeminence. That he might be preeminent. preeminence a fancy way of saying first place. That he would be number one. Again, who do we look to? We look to Jesus Christ when we look to the church. We ought to see him. We ought to see him. Paul wrote this to the church at Philippi. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if that wasn't enough, Verse 19, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, we already saw that first statement that he is the image of the invisible God. But now Paul comes around and he says, and by the way, Jesus was never shortchanged when it comes to Godness. He is all God. The very fullness of God is in Jesus Christ. To those who were contemplating that Jesus Christ was something less than the best Paul just comes along and goes no he is God you can't get me better than that we looked at the passage in John 1 this morning so I won't read that one but it, again it says in verse 16 and from his fullness we have received grace upon out of the fullness of who he is, he spoke to us. I mean, there's so many directions that that I could go with this, but the idea is, because of who he is, and that he is overall maker, sustainer, creator, he established the church, he's head of the church, all these things, he says, and from this fullness of who he is, we experience grace. And he finishes up with verse 20. For through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now a banker would understand the idea of reconciliation, wouldn't they? It's to make sure the books balance, right? Right? When we think in terms of reconciliation on a personal level, we think of the idea of bringing things into alignment again and things that are good. Second Corinthians, Paul wrote, All this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of Reconciliation. You know, Jesus Christ is not estranged from us, we're estranged from him. And he's the one that reached it out to us to reconcile us to him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was his drive, it was his intention It was his will that brought about salvation. It wasn't anything that we said, hey God, you you gotta make us right because, you know, that's just what we want. No, God reached into our life and said, no, I know your situation. I'm here to redeem it. And then we come to that last phrase. He says, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's a multiplicity of passages. I'm just going to go to Psalm because I love how the word of the psalmist here. says, Surely our salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love And faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Holy God, who will not step away from his righteousness and holiness, also speaks of peace. And who was this secured from? With? That was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the one that made a, a sinner saved by faith because of his work. So Paul, as he's writing to the church at Colossae, he said, don't let your mind go off in re- weird directions here. Don't go slipping off into some faulty thinking about who Jesus Christ is. Just come back to the words, all and everything. In everything, in everything, in all things, in everything he talks about in this passage. Brings us back to Jesus Christ. Brings us back to Jesus Christ. How should a believer respond to this? It's pretty easy. With thanksgiving. God, how great you are that you would love me such a way that you would marshal all of who you are to bring about redemption. You're worthy of all our praise and adoration and thanksgiving. Our only Father, we do bring before you our accolades. We want to Commend your Son, Jesus Christ, for all that he has done, and all that he is doing, and all that he will do in drawing us into your presence. There is no one like him, or even close. And we give thanks, in Jesus' name, amen.